0: graphic policy radio this is the comics podcast for people who loved gotham academy but don't want public education spending underwriting private educational institutions (laughs) this is your host ilana levin joining me today is return guest brendan fletcher Brendan is a New York Times bestselling writer of comic books and animation. His current projects include the Eisner Award-nominated series Isola and Motor Crush for Image Comics, as well as the upcoming Robotech comic series relaunched for Titan. Previous work includes DC Comics' Batgirl of Burnside, the YA mystery adventure series Gotham Academy, and Entertainment Weekly's best new series of 2015, Black Canary. Brendan contributed to the acclaimed Flash story uh, in the Eisner and Harvey award-winning Wednesday comics, co-created the Power Rangers Pink miniseries for Boom Studios, and contributed to Ghost in the Shell, Global Neural Network, and the Attack on Titan anthology for Kondasha. He currently lives in Brooklyn, New York with his wife and two cats. Welcome back.
1: Oh, hi. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I'm so happy to have you back. We we spoke like several years ago, and it always stuck with me as being one of the most fun episodes I had to tape. Like, period.
1: Oh, come on, thank you. It's true. It's so nice. And now we're like almost neighbors, so it's different. So close. Right? Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. And it's you know it's been a while. It's interesting. I was trying to remind myself like what are the things that we covered before that we want to cover now, but. You know my audio quality it was just not as good back then but i feel like the level of the quality of our conversation still makes it worthwhile for folks to (laughs) check out so so, uh when we last spoke you were like basically about to launch motor crush you had released a a preview comic um, that had been handed out at cons and around the internet And it was really amazing because I think we saw people cosplaying as characters from it before the comic had even actually been released. Um, And now it's been out for a couple of years. You have two trades out of the series. Uh, Let's just remind folks a little bit about what Motor Crush is about if they haven't checked it out yet.
1: Uh, It's funny, you know, when we start um, a new series... I don't think any of us spend a lot of time thinking of like a, a hot log line that we can use all the time <laughs> or like the elevator pitch. I think we, we do the pitch work and then we actually just get down to putting the, the project together. But since we launched Motor Crush, I've ended up describing it to everyone at shows when they come up and say, oh, what's this? I say, oh, that's Motor Crush. It's like Fast and Furious, but with ladies on bikes. And I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the book is a little more nuanced than that, but, um, yes, ultimately it is a, it is a fast ride. Uh, something that my partners, Cameron Stewart and Babs Tarr and I did when we were working on Batgirl is we tried to pack in a full, you know, story for every issue, uh, of, of the monthly comic in addition to doing, um, an arc long story, um, And we kind of got used to this rhythm of of fast-paced action and and really dense storytelling. Um, And we carried that over to Motor Crush. So there's a lot happening on on the pages. We we move through a lot of material. The action is very Um, Mm fast-paced. But it's... It is a story that masquerades as a sports comic, I think, on the outside. I think you, you, you see a lot of people on motorbikes. You think it's all about racing and the life of um, you, you know, an athlete um, because it is, it, it is someone who is, uh, has had a successful career um, uh, racing bikes on a track you know, in, in the circuit. And, uh, but really, it's a, it's a kind of weird sci-fi romance story. <laughs> and that becomes clearer the further you get into it to the point where you know we've got our third volume set to come out this march i mean it was supposed to come out for christmas but we pushed it back a few more months uh it's it's march 2020 and this thing feels like a terminator story you know it's (laughs) still still very much steeped in in um all the lore we created but it's got a different vibe altogether to it um Yeah, it's the story of uh, Domino Swift. She's a a successful uh, circuit racer by day, and at night she puts on different gear and heads out onto the street to participate in these things called cannonballs against all the local gangs of Nova Honda in hopes of winning a stash of Crush. And Crush is this um, mysterious liquid that all of the gangs... um, try to get to use in their bikes and has been outlawed on the circuit. It has a mysterious effect on the bikes, but it has an even more mysterious effect on Domino.
0: Da, da, da. Da, da, da. I believe the, the, I believe it was, it's a machine amphetamine or
1: what was the, (laughs) that's right. Yeah.
0: I love that. Machine narcotic. Yeah. Machine narcotic. Like that's just a beautiful turn of phrase. Um, I love I, 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 that 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 little like description of something really sold me because it's interesting. It's it's thinking about like machines as beings in a way as well, right? Mm-hmm. And the writer's relationship with their vehicle and um, I don't know. I think with any kind of science fiction that has to do with technology, we start to think a little bit about machines and 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 like humanity and. You know, I mean, this is a comic where the cutest, as in like most adorable, cheek pinchable character is a tiny round robot called Catball.
1: (laughs) I hadn't thought about Catball being the most adorable in the book. Um, And that was something Yeah, that the whole story of Catball is is so strange. It just came about um, by way of needing something for a single image to communicate more about the world. Um, we had the initial image of Domino and her ex-girlfriend Lola um, sitting on a, a bike, and we, uh, Cameron and I, were at Babs's place in South Carolina, and we're standing there looking at it. And we've got to announce this thing to the world shortly. And um, the drawing's great; it looks amazing, but it ultimately just looks like. A uh, couple of you know well-designed characters sitting on a, a regular bike, and we said, "Well, this is this is got to feel a little more science fictiony. Like we've got to do something with the bike. Can we m- can we make the bike more like Mecca Can we do something, mm-hmm. you know, like an uh, anime-style motorbike and not a straight-up motorbike?" And Babs just had her heart set on a particular kind of bike. And we said, well, there's still room in the in the composition. Like, is there something else? Can we put something in, up in the air? And so we left, <laughs> you know, we were, <laughs> I think Babs was getting a little aggravated with me and Cameron because um, we just kept putting, like, the drawing was great as it was, but we just needed to communicate that it was more than, um, you know, a fiction taking place in our present-day world. And we mm-hmm. left Babs to doodle for a while, and she doodled this little robot, and it had little cat ears. And I mean, obviously, it was a little inspired by Sailor Moon, but uh, which is, you know, one of Babs's favorite um, animated shows. Of course, if any uh, if any of your listeners have read our, our run on Batgirl, you will know that Sailor Moon turns up at least once per issue in the background somewhere. Yes. Uh, unsanctioned by Warner and DC Comics, of course. Um, but
0: that's fine, you know if it's, <laughs> if It makes they, it more yeah. believable Sure, It makes it more <laughs> believable that Sailor Moon is in the world of Batgirl like, Of
1: course But yeah. that's where the, the cat ball came from It was just, it doodled in there And Cameron and I immediately saw it and said Perfect, perfect, that's not something that we have today It's, uh, I mean I, I guess it kind of is with drones But it just, it felt like it was enough To communicate that this wasn't just A story about people on motorcycles And uh, I really, And then yeah, we wrote it yeah. into the book we we had we had always written in a big media presence in the book, like, um, but we, I think we had done it in a more traditional way in our first draft. And the uh, the creation of the cat ball allowed us to sort of re envision how that might work in in the world of Nova Honda's uh, racing.
0: Well, I read the the cat ball as sort of being commentary also on contextual advertisements in social media. Like how, you know, if you're like all of my friends who are like, you know, you go and you get married and then you start getting ads about fertility and it's like, Mm -hmm. fuck you, man, don't make assumptions (laughs) about me and my life. Um, Or, you know, you know what somebody was looking for on your computer when you get on it because it starts to suggest those things to you or, you know, the, the way your digital footprint follows you around with marketing advertisements from then on and you guys have used catball with great effect of humor with its sort of misplaced inappropriate advertising pitches
1: and and i think more than that i mean the when we had originally envisioned the sort of media circus around the racing uh, it was it was very much traditional with the you know announcer's giving you expository information about all the characters and the world. And it was just so um, bland and and we weren't really interested in, in it. And we wanted something more graphical. And that's how we ended up with these, this sort of like uh, pop-up style. Um, it's almost like pop-up video in a way, right? Like little little yeah. pop-up captions. And, mm-hmm. and that style of communication moved over then to the way we started using the cat balls and and it got a little more interesting once uh, you know spoiler alert I'm sorry I'm gonna talk about things that happen in the first volume but um, the cat ball that follows Domino around gets reprogrammed Mm -hmm. by her ex-girlfriend who is a mechanic and uh, a computer genius of course reprograms this thing and it gets a bit of its own personality it gets some individuality and uh it starts cracking jokes in a really dry way uh and using its ad speak in a way to comment on the um circumstances it finds itself in with uh, domino and lola and dom's dad sully yeah and it also saves the day (laughs)
0: It does. Yeah, it's a great, it's just a great character thing and a a great like narrative technique throughout the story. I definitely don't want to lose sight of the awesomeness that is Domino herself. Um, I remember seeing, I think, I think it was the month that the first issue of Motor Crush was released. Uh, I, I think she was the only black female character featured on the cover of an of a comic book from like the, uh, in the diamond catalog or something like that maybe i'm wrong it was like some ridiculous statistic though if oh, not wow. the only it was like and i'm not talking about like you know if you've got an, an issue of like justice league and like vixen is one of the five people on sure, it i don't i don't sure. i'm not counting that i mean like the i mean like clearly front and center protagonist yeah it was something right. crazy like that that um, is
1: bananas i had no idea
0: yeah, I mean, yeah. And you know, now we have, you know, Ironheart and um there and uh there's um Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, so like that wouldn't that wouldn't be true now, but it still is like pretty, you know, a shocking absence um in terms of like the fi- the faces that we see on the fronts of the books on the stands. Um so I think that was one of the reasons that made it really stand out and feel exciting to folks, especially like a woman with short hair and like with her girlfriend. I mean, on top of that all, that was super mm-hmm. exciting and distinctive. Um so you know, I was how much of that uh part of the core concept of the character uh was like part of the world building of this coming in Brazil or you know like how did that aspect of her character come together with the story
1: well I'll, I'll just give you the quick uh, rundown of the sort of origin of, of this thing it started as a, an animation pitch that I had done back in I'm going to say 2002 2001 um, and it was called Motor Honey and uh, same Kind of core concept, um, slightly different turn of of plot. Um, there were other supporting castmates. There was a turtle in it. Oh God, <laughs> um, who could forget? But it was it was initially meant for animation, and I I had kind of it, it, I was in Canada. Things were a little different there, and. Um, It was working out for a while and then it didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere so I started turning it into a comic, pitched it to Jamie Rich who was still at Oni at the time. Jamie gave me a green light on it but then after a month or so Jamie left Oni and uh, James Lucas Jones sent me an email and said, I'm really sorry but I'm going to be honest with you I'm not feeling this. Um, I know Jamie was but I'm going to have to let this go and he gave me his apologies and I put it in a drawer and that was it and um, fast forward to 2014 Cameron and I are working up this girl thing, we're really excited about it, we we found Babs online, brought her on board uh, and we just felt like we were firing on all cylinders together, we really enjoyed working together but um DC and our, our great editor uh, Mark Doyle uh, along with Chris Conroy um, were very clear with us that we were likely only going to get six issues like one story arc out of this Batgirl thing it was a time r- like right before DC was about to move to Burbank Mark had just come in as the new um, Batman group editor and the sense that we all got was that they kind of just threw it out there to Mark like hey man we know you're not moving to burbank with us you've only got you know six issues six months worth of, of story that you can kind of green light and, and start out so you've got a bunch of titles that we otherwise might have canceled like back because they were starting to to drop in sales um and there's room in the line so just kind of do whatever you want for that six months then we're going to do this this two-month buffer storyline and then we're going to Rethink everything. You know, everything's going to start again once we're in Burbank. Um, so, that said, Mark had leeway to do things like throw it out there to Becky, and, and you know, we were able to do Gotham Academy, and um, he threw it out there to Cameron to just do something with Batgirl. And, I, I mean, I it sounds like... He, they, they put a lot of lines in the water. So there were a number of people pitching for, for Batgirl at the time. Uh, a, a bunch of our friends were, were pitching, and that's kind of how we know about it. Um, hmm. But to, to get back to us as a team, we loved working together. It was It was fantastic. And it was a bummer that we had only, once we got the green light to move forward, we're only given six issues, and we kind of thought that was going to be it because it was a totally different take on on the character well not a totally different take but it was it was different from what they had been doing um Recently, so we yeah, were just yeah, yeah we, we just felt like that was going to be it and then what are we going to do after that we really like working together wouldn't it be great to do our own thing and um you know Babs had kind of gotten known by doing her uh Sailor Moon characters on motorbikes we had Batgirl on a motorbike And it just seemed like, you know, Ladies on Bikes was Babs' thing. And I kind of threw it out there, like, hey, guys, I have this old pitch from (laughs) whatever, you know, at the time, just more than 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that you guys might like. So I sent it over to them. They both liked it. And uh, together, the three of us workshopped the original pitch into something new and different, something that, that suited the three of us. And, um where domino specifically became the domino swift that we know today was after babs and cameron had done a a convention trip down to brazil that kind of changed the face of of motor crush it it changed the location it it created or inspired nova honda as a a location um the aesthetics of motor crush kind of came into place and and the character of domino um shifted around that a little bit so um she she was you know she sort of had the same goals the same setup as a character back in the original motor honey but her particulars um shifted after the 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 trip to brazil and and babs and cameron uh babs in particular had a strong hand in cementing who domino was uh including her first name i think the I had given her a different first name initially. I'd sent over... A, they, they usually come to me for the names because I, I seem to like coming up with weird names if you've read you Academy. You have
0: so <laughs> many character names that are very distinctive in, like, everything. Yeah, totally.
1: Cameron, I think, gave up after a while and was just like, you come up with the names. You know, we'll tweak it if we want something different. And that's what happened with Domino is... Um, I can't remember what the initial name was, but it, Babs just wasn't feeling it like it was a little too off-center. And she threw out a whole bunch of things, and Cameron and I were like, nah, nah. And then one day she just said, it's Domino. I know it is. And and it, the last name was that uh, we were already kind of agreed on Swift, and we all went, Domino Swift. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. And then she just sent us a sketch, and we were – that was it. It was – she came up with the name domino we all love domino swift and then she sent us that drawing of, of domino swift and and it was um uh oh my god i'm blanking what it's uh the, the sister of jaden smith will smith's daughter
0: oh willow i want to say willow
1: yeah the uh she was the inspiration uh, oh
0: yeah oh wow
1: She had just, uh, I think she had done some solo, um, uh, uh, like modeling editorials, magazine editorials Mm -hmm. at the time, and then one with her brother. And that had all just kind of hit at the same time. And Bab sent that to us along with the initial uh, sketch that she had done. And we were like, oh yeah, yeah, I see it. I see it. Like stylistically, she was wearing things that felt right for, for this world. And it just all kind of fell into place.
0: That's so cool. I mean, I really uh, uh, enjoy and appreciate how much like actual fashion is part of the work that you get, the three of you do together with Babs Tar and Cameron Stord. And you know, like for folks who aren't familiar with Babs Tar, like she herself like comes from a lot of fashion illustration background, and that's why all the, th- the things she draws actually have cool clothing, and it's part of the character development, and it's really thoughtful.
1: It was one of the main reasons that we agreed on babs initially for batgirl is that we wanted we were building this new part of gotham city called burnside and it was supposed to reflect barbara gordon at the age that that dc told us she was they they said she was a 21 year old so we were trying to build the world that a 21 year old would exist in um you know if they grew up in this in this dark part of um of the DC universe as Gotham is supposed to be. What would a 21 year old seek out? And and if they still have to stay in this sort of area, maybe there's a part of it that's a little more, uh, is a little newer. So we sort of started coming up with this story. I mean, it's partially inspired by where we were all living, including places like Brooklyn, you know, Montreal, yeah. Berlin, yeah. areas that were being gentrified and, and younger people were, were coming in and, and styles were changing. And um, it was partially why. Uh, I mean, I we had a lot more planned uh, that we had hoped to get to. About it was why um, we had uh, Barbara Gordon studying urban geography. So the whole larger arc that we were planning to do over a number of years would have been about the gentrification of this part of of Gotham City. Um, and and
0: part of that story culture, was in the book. You know, it, absolutely.
1: A little bit, yeah. Uh, it we we didn't quite get to do what we wanted to with it but it was certainly there and um part of the reason that we wanted someone like babs was to reflect that youth culture in an accurate way we you know style is so important and not just uh fashion not just style that people wear the the style of a person's apartment the way that they deck out their bedroom um the way that um you know, a coffee shop in, in a gentrified part of, or a cafe in a gentrified part of a town will will be styled differently from an old diner. You know, those things, and Babs pays attention to that. Cameron pays attention to it too, um, and, and Cameron's great at locations and stuff, but I think he just always felt like someone like Babs could do the fashion side so much better. So those two working, um, you know, hand in hand were just like a dream team. Cameron doing layouts, um, helping Babs out with like what locations might look like, um, and then Babs adding details and coming in and, and uh, really putting her fashion touch to it. And it just it it's part of the reason we felt like we just needed to. Once we decided to leave Batgirl, uh, we we had the option to do more, but we decided to leave it at a point. Um, we wanted to. Um, dig into that again because we knew it was a thing that we, we all loved and that we could do well as a team and so coming up with this new location Nova Honda um, you know was, was really exciting for us it, especially uh, Cameron and Babs who had just been down to Brazil and who had been fascinated with, with um, what they had seen um, Babs was also into uh, style and fashion that was coming out of Miami at the time uh, she kept mm. sending us all of this uh, very pink <laughs> and purple Miami-based uh, artwork.
0: Yeah, this is definitely the most neon pink comic of any <laughs> comic produced. Like, that was when I was, like, looking to pick up the second trade. I looked mm-hmm. at the shelf, and I was like, find the pinkest thing.
1: There
0: we go. <laughs> there we go.
1: We're very proud of that.
0: Yeah. Oh, wait, who's the colorist on this? It was... um.
1: Well, Babs does some of it, but she works with some of her friends. Um, all of whose names I'm blanking on because I happen to be... Oh, movie. I got him.
0: For volume two, I've got Heather Danforth, Victoria Patty Evans, Ford. and Ellen Aso, Alsop. But yeah, like they really have a great color look and feel on this. Yeah.
1: It's, um, Babs it's is directing that. Uh, but I, I know they're all great. She's got a great team working with her.
0: Um... You know, I I uh, I also really like that it's in Brazil because there's just we need more science fiction and that shows the a future world that isn't just based in America and Europe, and right. um, and Brazil is a really cool place to have that happen. And it actually made me think about an anime which I haven't seen because I'm useless on this, but that I'd noticed because of the internet. I actually don't know if it had any connection to this for you guys. It was Michiko and
1: uh, Oh Hachin? Yeah. Uh, I've never watched that. That's on uh, at the top of my list of of shows to watch.
0: but um I've heard about it because it, yeah, I'd heard about it because it was supposed to take place in South America, which was like a mm-hmm. definitely a different um, well, then, I suppose that was not an influence moving along. Um, it, but yeah, I but really i will I will tell setup.
1: you the initial influence um, on me to from back in the day with motor honey was uh, an animated show from Japan called Furikuri, F-L-C-L. And uh, is a six-episode series, completely wild, the most imaginative thing I'd ever seen. And um, not in a style that I would normally want to work in. And it inspired me to want to try something different, to be a little more madcap, um, to push mm-hmm. comedy a little bit. And that's my initial vision for this thing was, was more wild. And, um, you know, when you work in a team, the, the, um, the final, uh, product that you make together is a sort of synthesis of the parts of, of the best parts of what, what the team wants to do together. So, um, motor crush, and it's a thing, you know, we talk about it all the time that, motor crush is not a thing that any of the three of us would do individually it would be much mm. different and I think we, you know there are these bits and pieces that we all occasionally feel disappointed in but they're different for each of us and it's because it's not the vision of any one of us individually it's this shared vision in a way that's that is involves these certain little each person having little compromises in their, area or, or what they would ideally like to do i always liken it to and maybe this is this is dating me this is an old person reference i guess um i liken this to a work by the police the rock band uh-huh. from the late 70s and the 80s yeah those guys broke up because that's what their deal was like they there was three guys who were incredible musicians they each had their own vision of what these songs should be, or what an album should sound like, and they could never agree. Um, but the mm-hmm. audience, their fans, saw no problem with the, the final product. Loved it. Loved everything. And those three guys were never satisfied. Even now, like I, you know, I'll, I'll listen to interviews, and they're not 100 percent satisfied with the work that had come out years ago because it wasn't yeah. what you know Sting, especially, um, really wanted to take control of everything and, and make it his own. And I think he ultimately got more of his way in the final album and Stuart Copeland, the drummer, was you know, uh, exceeding some of the control just so they could get through the project and get it out. And that's kind of, you know, Motor Crush always feels like this push and pull between the three of us to find right. this perfect middle ground. Uh, and I feel like, like that the three gives, members,
0: Like the three members of the police.
1: Yeah, but it gives a project in this energy, this crackle of life. Um, that, mm-hmm. that little bit of conflict, um, I find it exciting. And I think, you know, we've, we're in this third volume now. I think it's really great. I, I hope everybody can check it out in March when it comes out. It is maybe the most exciting of the three volumes so far.
0: Oh, wow. And you said Terminator, and that is yeah. something I'm definitely into. So um, It has that mentioned...
1: relentless feel, like from the beginning. It, <laughs> it just does not stop it just keeps pushing forward
0: well for folks who followed along like from the end of part two it is very clear why that would be what folks would see next so yes. i'm excited to hear that and it's so it's being released as a single tray paperback rather than as individual issues that's right um i think that's great because most people aren't buying floppies at the stand every wednesday and you know as much as i enjoy covers Like, this is a comic that I think is going to be good and easy for me to share with folks who don't normally read comics, and my friends who don't normally read comics don't want to borrow a pile of floppies. Yeah. They would much be more likely to read a trade. So I I think it makes a lot of sense as a format for sales,
1: you know? Well, it certainly did for us for this project, and I I had started feeling like, well, this is the way of the future. This is how I should be looking at all my future projects, but um, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to in the last year fellow creators, um, publishers, uh, other retailers who talk to me about sales on single issues in different stores, different locations uh, around this country uh, and mine, around Canada. Um, And it seems like the answer is always, well, it depends. Because if it's (laughs) this title, it's going to sell a lot of floppies. Or if it's in this city, it's going to sell more as floppies. Or if it's in this particular store... Well, that store only sells floppies. They really don't move many graphic novels. and um, So, right? Yeah. So, what we were going on with Motor Crush in particular is that we kind of had this line in the sand that we had drawn. Like, once floppy sales dip below this line, it's almost not worth it for us to go through that monthly or, you know, bi-monthly, whatever it is, schedule uh, that struggle to um, get the book book packaged up for image production and, and gets in, sent off to the printer. There's a, a whole other behind the scenes side of putting books together that, that most um, fans or readers don't. You know they, they're kind of a little aware of it, but they don't really understand like how much how much of a time suck it is. Like in every mm-hmm. day that you are dealing with the production of a book or the marketing of a book or, or you know, get getting it together, dealing with your co-creators on files, et cetera, et cetera, that takes away from creating the next book. And when you're doing a single package that is 100 or 120 or 140 pages long, whatever it may be, um, you can just double down and focus on that. Now, it does mean that you are likely as a creative team fairly quiet about that production for a longer period of time excuse me so you don't get that monthly burst of of promotion on that title for instance we haven't spoken about motor crush for ages like it's maybe going to be almost a year um that we've been silent on motor crush prompting a lot of fans to to ask us you know if motor crush is dead is it gone and um You know, we just have to keep saying, no, 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 it's actually on the schedule. Here's the Amazon listing. You can pre-order it. It's coming. It's very cool. Um, But I think people are really still in that mindset of, like, if you don't hear about it all the time, it's not going to happen. And this is – once a lot of books start moving into um, this format, it's going to be more like TV seasons where – Here's another, for instance, I, I just see that Mindhunter is either back or coming back to Netflix, and we haven't even heard a peep about that for two years since the initial season hit. Um, so that's, I, I think it's kind of just how some projects are moving. But uh, in the case of another of my, my comics, uh, I'm doing another image book called the Isola with my friend Carl Kerschel, who I had done um, Gotham Academy with and gorgeous, it's, art. gorgeous. Oh, well, Carl and and also um Michelle who goes by the name M Sassy K she was the colorist on Gotham Academy so great art team absolutely stunning stuff I'm I'm a very lucky writer to be working with my friends friends so talented as as Carl and Michelle uh, but that book is still it still makes sense for us to do that book as floppies um While as a story, it might feel, because it's more decompressed than Motor Crush, it might feel like to to a lot of people that it reads better as a collection or a trade, a graphic novel. Um, It still makes better sense for us to do floppies for the time being. So we're not looking to change that yet. So I I really do feel like it is a case-by-case basis, Um, and I'm totally up to discussing you know all of this with any of my publishers at any time for any project um, everything's up for reevaluation. Um, I, I am very interested in in it very interested in keeping my eye on the market um, where my titles are concerned and, and just in general um, because I think it's shifting uh, constantly and I don't know if we do end up in a in a concrete place, I don't know what that's going to look like right now. So I'm I'm open to doing the best thing for each project as, as it um, as it happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of uh, for those of us doing who like talk about expanding access in the comics like world to, to, to new different readers. like we always talk about the importance of trade paperbacks, because. Those are what's going to get stack, stocked at a, a bookstore. Um, you know, a lot of people who aren't comics fans don't really understand how monthly comics work. da da da, da. And then we just sort of generally saw like a lot of, we were seeing a lot of books that were, you know, coming out monthly from the big publishers getting canceled because it wasn't doing well and floppies and then the trade selling really well and then getting uncancelled and it became this cycle where like, we were joking about who could have predicted that this comic <laughs> that wasn't aimed at older uh-huh. white men would sell better in trade. Like, why did you cancel that? We knew the trade yeah. would be popular. But, um, yeah. so I don't know. It's interesting to think about that as an artistic choice as well. Cause I just usually don't even think about it as an artistic choice at this point. I just think about it as a, a question of accessing different kinds of audiences. But Well, it was, a, I think,
1: I think it was a business choice for motor crush. Motor crush trades sell really, really well. And the issues not
0: surprised.
1: Yeah. Um, if we ever do come back to Gotham Academy, um, which will most likely happen at some point, I'm assuming Yay. it will be. I'm assuming it will be uh, a single volume collection. It'll be a, a little trade, which will be in one of DC's new lines. I know they did away new with New lines and for Zoom, the youth. But
0: yeah,
1: I'm oh, that's sure. so
0: good. I'm so happy to hear that. Well, that we, it's still so a hope. Sense. I mean, we
1: we all want hope, to do it. Right. We know that people inside of DC, I mean, Gotham Academy has always had its supporters at DC, like people who are very, very, very passionate about it. And um, if it makes sense in their publishing schedule, um, I think it's going to happen. Um, to be frank, and maybe this is maybe I shouldn't be speaking. Uh, about this, but I I know that part of the reason it went away was to make room for the ink and zoom lines. Um, it, it wasn't doing that well as singles, so I think that was another strike that it had against it. Um, but the trades have always done really well. The trades sell out constantly. Um, but partially on the sort of trade success of that, and definitely on the trade success of the DC Superhero Girls books. Um, they started these ink and zoom lines and Gotham Academy kind of didn't fit. So um, I know that they wanted it to stay hidden for a little while while they established their uh, their new lines of books with the hope of bringing it back in time. So fingers crossed, one day yeah. we'll get to go back and do the next semester. Hmm. There are well, definitely more like the stories to, to tell. It. <laughs>
0: that definitely sounds like the right way to do it. So I am excited. Yeah. I hope it comes out that way.
1: Uh, I do too. Um, <laughs> I miss those those characters. Those kids are they have a special place in my heart. I love those kids.
0: Ours as well. Um actually one thing while we're talking about big two comics is I had a I had a listener question which was Oh great Which DC which DC or Marvel characters would Domino Swift hang out with?
1: <laughs> well, I mean Look, if I was going to get to do a crossover book, don't for a minute think that it wouldn't be uh, Motor Crush x Batgirl. I mean... Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just got to be, because it's going to be me and Cameron and Babs, and, uh, I mean, it would probably have to be Batgirl x Motor Crush, of course. Um, yeah. But there'd be a lot of bikes. Uh, Black Canary would 100% have to be there. Yeah. Um, because I think, in terms of, I think, in terms of people that, I, I think, I think that Black Canary would have to be there to. <laughs> how do I say this? Uh, Lola has an anger problem, <laughs> and yeah. I don't. I, I think that Barbara Gordon could get taken. Uh, aback by that and not that she wouldn't deal with it in her back girl persona but I think um, having having Black Canary there to be uh, a mother figure as she can be but also knowing how, how to deal with aggressive people <laughs> really well without turning right. it into combat or being or else uh, you know turning it into combat in the best way possible uh, I always just feel mm. like Dinah's the best character for that
0: I also was thinking about Starfire, like, as a character who I thought would definitely have an interesting dynamic with both Lola and Domino.
1: Wow. Starfire, man, I just, you know, I haven't watched that new Titans show and I haven't read Titans books for a while, but I used to love the new Teen Titans in the 80s. And I loved the Starfire character. I thought she was great. I would, yeah. If anybody has
0: superpowered hair... I mean, Lola (laughs) has super powered hair.
1: It's true. And
0: Starfire, I believe, travels using the power of her hair burning behind her. So there we have it. Well, awesome. Um, You know, and again, it was just so great to see like a black queer woman on the cover, especially a black queer woman with like short natural hair. It continues to be like a really bold and powerful thing to see on the cover of comics. So, oh, yeah. I just
1: love that character. And I. I love that uh, so many other people have been inspired by her. I love seeing Domino Swift cosplay. It just like mm-hmm. it'll make my month whenever I see a photo of of somebody doing Domino Swift cosplay. It's just uh, so, it's incredible.
0: Yeah, actually, I was just at Flame Con, the LGBTQ comics geek fest in New York, which is the best geek mm-hmm. fest con- convention in the world. It's a Flame fact. Con. It's the best. Um, and i saw i've seen cosplayers before i and i saw someone one of the vendors had uh, a little bit of motor crush um like fan art merch and i thought to myself i was like i don't know what do you guys think of that i mean obviously this is not like a big license this is not hot topic ripping off your stuff right yeah um but i don't know it's an interesting question like it's It's not like, and it's not like it's somebody asking an artist to do like a commission drawing of one of the characters. I think that that's all kind of treated as being par for the course of comics, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she she had some stickers of um, Crush vials with like I don't remember exactly the details. It was cool, but I was also like,
1: oh wait. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not as a young creator. Coming up in the scene, it's probably not the best move uh, to not ask um, your peers permission when your peers actually own the thing. So um, I love the enthusiasm. I love that it's I love that Motor Crush means something to people. Um, We would probably say it's fine if we were asked. But technically, it's kind of not cool to ask. Um, Just because we're kind of all in this together, we're all kind of struggling together. Um, So I would say if any listeners are out there thinking of, you know, doing... making their own, like, Wicked and Divine t-shirts or, you know, saga stickers or anything, just, you know, uh, everybody's on Twitter. Everybody's on Instagram. You could... uh, you could shoot fiona a, a message on instagram or or send jamie and kieran a, a a tweet and just say hey would it be cool if i just made this little you know run of 50 stickers of this for the con i'm sure everybody would say yes but it's the we i think when we're all in it together struggling to kind of make these things and and have careers we're we should probably all just kind of have each other's backs that way. So, yes, I mean, yeah. whoever that is, yes, we would say yes, but let us know. Show ask. us a sticker. Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: <laughs> send you guys some free stickers, exactly. Send,
1: send me a sticker. Um, oh, That's yeah, usually, yeah, I mean, yeah. that we, I don't know if you've seen, but Michelle, who colors um, Isola, she is um, not one of the owners of Isla. I mean, we she... she Um, we have behind the scenes we've you know she gets extra um and we'll always have a, a piece of it but um she asked us permission to do her zine about isola and oh um so she does she does a little zine about um the making of the book and how she colors it and it's become more of a process thing about um Showing people the the methods that she uses to to produce the book.
0: Oh, cool! Really, really cool that's really stuff. Neat. Yeah. So my big question about Isola is: uh, Are the animals okay? Are they gonna Are they hurt? I'm concerned about them. I just need to know because it's hard for me with animals.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, that's the thing. Uh, it is technically a YA book. Uh, younger readers can, can definitely dive in um, but the one caution I always give parents uh, or people who are sensitive is that we speak frankly about um, the natural world and the way man has treated animals. This is a fantasy world so uh, you know there's no great um uh, what do you call it? Um, there's no great machine in in play where where humans are are farming animals on, on a, a grand scope the way that we do here, um, but there are um, clans of hunters and they play a part in it. And um, the I, I think it's it's plain we, we don't speak about it in in these terms, you know, super plainly yet. But I think you can see that part of the subtext of everything that is that the natural world is out of balance and the queen being turned into a tiger is likely a part of seeking a solution.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I get it. Totally. Um, but yeah, that, that comic is really beautiful and definitely been standing out. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited to hear that you guys are, are going to keep going on it.
1: Yeah, that book's going to be going for another five years, I think. This is the other problem. If, you, you know, doing more Gotham Academy, Carl can't draw it for another uh, maybe five years if we're, until we finish Isola. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean... Um, there are a lot of other amazing artists that we worked with on Gotham Academy that I would love to work with again. Um, so there's that. But yeah, uh, getting Carl to pause Isola to, to do Gotham Academy is probably not going to happen, unfortunately. Or fortunately for Isla fans. We just feel like sure, we've made yeah. this promise to the readers that we're going to just keep our noses down and get finish this story and, and deliver on it.
0: And this is your big, like, epic fantasy saga that you guys have had in mind for forever.
1: It is, and and it feels epic to us in a lot of ways. But but when we write it, it's really just the story of two people. Um, so they're living in this sort of epic fantasy world with these big things happening around them, and and their choices will will affect those those larger things. Um, but uh, oftentimes, it just feels like we're writing this. This this story of two people on a uh, on a weird journey halfway across their fantasy world.
0: But um, but this is definitely a project that you you had said that you guys had been uh, coming up with this story for a really long time.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is that we started working on this other project called Miki back when we were ooh, I don't know, twenty three or twenty four. It was a long time ago, and um, parts of that fantasy adventure work got splintered off, and I, like, I would say the two main characters in that book feel to me now more like adult versions of Olive and Maps from Gotham Academy. Um, and there are other things that have found their way into, like Batgirl or Black Canary. Specifically, mm-hmm. there's one specific thing in Black Canary that came from that project. So we've been mining that fantasy adventure thing that we worked on for almost a decade that has never been published uh, for all of our other uh, work. Isola, however, is a direct descendant of it. It's not the exact project that we were working on, but without that project, there would be no Isola. I think we learned a lot of lessons in that um, I'm going to say it was seven and a half years <laughs> of working hmm. on Miki behind the scenes while we both had other jobs. Um, we learned a lot. We were way, way, way too ambitious with that. Like, we started with a very small story, and it just grew and grew and grew. And we thought we could handle it, and we were not old enough yet. We didn't have enough experience. Neither of us had enough time. Uh, and it just totally got away from us. And Isola is a version of this that, for us, is manageable, is more mature and nuanced. Um, that said, uh, Carl's been living in Japan for a year. He and his family just flew home, and, and for a few days they were staying back in Niagara, southern Ontario, where we grew up, um, at his parents' house. And he found our old production book of, of that story, and neither of us have looked at it for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And hmm. he, <laughs> he said to me on the phone, uh, I can't believe it, I just read through the script, and it's maybe better than our current work. He said, I can't believe how great this is. It still reads like something we would do today. Um I said, God, come on. Wow. It's, it's not as good as Isola, right? And he says, well, it's more complete because it's got, like... It, it's more fleshed out and f- complete, you know, because hmm. we've been working on it for so long. It was a full story. Um, whereas we're just in the... Oh, what is that? The first third of Isola right now. Um, but, yeah, it's it's exciting. I mean, this there's so much so much still to look forward to with Isola. Um, The next chapter especially, the the chapter that will be published next year is the one we've been dying to get to. I know that doesn't say very much, but
0: (laughs) No, but that's (laughs) exciting. That's exciting. It
1: it involves um, it involves characters that we have referenced and uh, that you've kind of seen a little bit and have been hinted at mm-hmm. and a lot of background detail, a lot of revelations, a lot of things that we've been sort of dancing around for the first two volumes. We really dig into well
0: that that, that must be really gratifying to be able to actually make that happen after all that time and uh, and that's also exciting to be able to tell readers like that that's what's coming up. So thank you for that. Uh, One of the things I want to make sure we... One of the things I want to make sure we take a little bit of time for is Robotech. (laughs) Yes! I am not... um, I am not particularly schooled in the ways of the fighting robots, Mm -hmm. and in the ways of the tech. I I watched part of the original uh, dub, I believe, and the only thing I remember was... um, the main woman what is her name the 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 military sergeant uh
1: in robotech her her name name is lisa hayes she's uh, thank
0: you yes so i just remember lisa hayes looking at her hair and telling the person i was dating at the time that her hair confused me and them commenting that uh i believe the line was if you don't rescue me now, I'll be forced to sell my hair at the Cinnabon. That's because right, of yeah. the spiral.
1: <laughs> at the,
0: and you know, that's all I remember now was that joke. So, uh, but I know, I know a lot of people who love Robotech, um, and you know, whenever you go to any con, you can see them; they're all very visible. H- how did you get involved in writing Robotech, and what's your connection to this? Uh, I don't want to say property, but to this fictional universe of Macross slash Robotech slash the fighting roboty thing.
1: thing. I mean, I think getting involved, this is probably Carl's fault because he, uh, when Titan got the license, I'm not sure if he was tweeting about it or they knew he was a, an Uber fan, but I mean, he and I grew up together. We were huge fans of the cartoons when we were young. Um, we were in school together when it, when it started airing back in 1985. So we would obsess about this in class. And I think when Titan got the license to do the comics, they somehow found out that he was a big fan and hit him up to do some covers. And, um, I think Chris Thompson over there was aware that we were friends and that we were both kind of geeking out about it. And when the time came for them to, um start their second uh, what would you call it they kind of relaunched the title after the big the big climactic ending of, of the current series um, I, they were looking forward a year and seeing that that would happen and Chris Thompson reached out to me knowing that I was a big nerd but I told him up front I said um, he was the brand manager at Titan at the time and I said Chris I love Robotech but I don't I don't see anything else that I would want to do with it like I, I like what it is I'm not interested in working on it you know I'm happy to hang out with you and chat about stuff and hear what you have to say but I'm just going to tell you up front I'm focusing on working on my own stories now I've got a lot going on very excited about the future happy to hang out though and he we went out for a coffee and he gave me this pitch and I just remember folding over in my seat and being like (laughs) depressed and excited at the same time I said oh Chris like this is ridiculous this is you you got me you got me you you got me interested this pitch got me Um, and and in a nutshell it was uh, the world the world of Robotech is your oyster you can do anything the point that we end Mm this first series on leaves the door open for you to almost do anything you want with it and how could I say no I immediately threw out the most ridiculous thing to him I said well I mean you know the books that I've worked on you know what I like to do what about this character and this character and this character and this character together there's no way they should be in a story together and he said well whatever you think if you can write a story about that you know pitch it to us and <laughs> make it happen. So, I mean, that's kind of where I came from with it, is I, I started with this, um, I started by reading what they had been doing with it, uh, which opened up the world to almost unlimited possibilities by, by the end of the story, which is where they're about to get to now. They're just wrapping this two, three-year-long run that is a bit of a game changer for for the universe of Robotech. Um, Robotech as it is, is kind of a, a confusing thing to look into now as a modern um, uh, potential fan uh, or anime fan because it's it wasn't clear back in the 80s what, what it was. It was just an amazing new cartoon on TV that was a multi-generational saga of, you know... Um, our world being invaded multiple times over there's alien invaders it's this whole saga of 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 the earth kind of banding together and fighting off this alien invasion and then like a generation later it happens again different aliens and then again a generation later it happens again little did we know at that time it was three completely unrelated japanese animated series that <laughs> um had to be strung together in order to meet the syndication demands of well i mean it, basically they wanted to air the, the first series that was called Macross: super dimension fortress Macross, but it was only 36 episodes which you couldn't get syndicated in in north america at that time so they strung it together with two other series that had been created by the same animation company in japan and figured out a little storyline they could weave between the three to make it make sense um and it worked for us as as kids back in the '80s, and as adults now, you can see the holes in it and see how they, you know, tried to work some voiceover narration magic to make it make a little more sense. and And in the ensuing years, there were, uh, you know, comics and novels and um, all sorts of other media to kind of fill in the the holes. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's 2019 if you knew if you were a fan of that back in the day you in in all of these years have come to learn that it was three separate things if you're a modern anime fan you're very much aware of the 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 series that that made the first part of Robotech which is called Macross because Macross has continued in Japan with multiple sequels and films and all sorts of medium amazing toys the, the coolest transforming toys you can imagine um, it's just magnificent none of that stuff comes here though um so it's these it's they've kind of splintered off robotech is this splinter story that starts in the same place as Macross, but becomes this different thing uh, and to me i'm sort of fascinated by robotech i mean it, it's a it's a it's a complicated thing, and I have complicated feelings about it because it, um, because of the way that the existence of Robotech currently keeps all of this wonderful macros material from coming stateside or coming to the West uh, on the whole uh, because of the legal issues surrounding all of that and the multiple companies involved in it. It's very complicated. But um, I'm fascinated that to look back on what Robotech was and to, to see that it was so responsible for anime coming to the West on the, on the whole, it's not like there had not been, you know, speed racer and battle of the planets, which was Gatchaman and, um, and uh, Yamato called uh, Star Blazers. You know, there were all sorts of other shows, but Robotech really was a sea change and, and the success of that created a, another company by one of the people that was involved that had a hand in bringing over Akira, which really uh, created a whole fandom that allowed for things like Toonami to happen on, on Adult Swim, which of course, you know, just allowed for
0: game changer. Yeah.
1: Total yeah. game changer. This is, it's a snowball effect, all of these things. And, and back in the day, the thing that created it was a sort of first artifact of what we would call remix culture today. You know, the ultimate mashup, this, this new thing that was created from parts of other things. Um, And that's the title that I've gone with for the comic that I'm doing, Robotech Remix. Um, Because the original thing was a remix, but what I'm doing in this new series is I'm commenting on that in the metatextual way. I think there's so much to talk about. In, in, in terms of not just extending the narrative in and of itself, but in terms of um, what the existence of this thing means, that this this uh, you know, brand or IP, the existence of this, this cartoon as it was today to us as older fans who watched it back in the 80s, the nostalgia we have for it, and then also what it means as, a, as an early artifact of remix culture when remixes are... are you know, a cornerstone of of uh, and and mashups are a cornerstone of the the, the music scene today. Um, you know, if not the the fashion scene, it's become part of yeah. our culture. Um, Robotech kind of sits outside of it. Like I don't know that it's you know quote unquote cool in the same way. Um, but to me, it was uh, one of the first times that I was aware of multiple works of art being smashed together and remixed into another thing and i'm talking about that as part of the story so while you'll follow the adventures of the characters there is a sort of um subtext that is informed by what this thing is today to us to old fans and to new fans Uh, i think it's really cool it's really interesting it's it's very complicated i understand we a lot of us there is there's there are some dark feelings about it out there there are people with complicated feelings mm-hmm. um, but uh, there's also some excitement still around it and I I'm Com- really complicated how well complicated in, in just in that there are a lot of fans of macross out there there are a lot of fans of um, of all of the original anime in fact and um, there are a lot of you know, of course each, animated series had uh, so many people so many incredibly talented people designing and drawing directing animating writing uh, and those people uh, aren't necessarily credited for being a part of Robotech um, but they were the initial they're, they're the people who made this all happen um, and you know part of what I'm trying to bring to it is is an awareness of the of the people who created those things um, because i also have complicated feelings about it you know i, I want the world to know about the design genius of harohiku mikimoto and uh shinji aramaki and shoji kawamori uh, brilliant 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 people who, who worked on all this stuff um but also you know i i I love, I have a great love for Robotech and what it meant to me as a kid and of what I think it could be in the modern day, and I'd, I'm excited to be a part of that, but I also want to uh, tell everyone how Macross has never stopped in Japan and how there's all this right, amazing stuff right, and right. it's not that easy to get here, I mean it's not that hard either, you can go on Amazon or eBay or anything and just order it in, um, I've got it all in my apartment, it's incredible. And, um, you know, I want people to watch Macross Frontier and listen to the the records that they put out all the time and and go to the concerts if you ever get to Japan or just watch the concert (laughs) videos. It's, um, to me, like, it was such an important part of uh, the evolution of mecha anime. Um, I mean, Shoji Kawamori, who who was kind of the heart of it... um, He's the creator of a lot of the most famous Transformers. You know, like he designed these things when he was in school because he just loved robots and loved designing, I guess, robots that transform. And uh, hmm. and he was also a big Gundam fan. One of the first big robot uh, animes that, or one of the probably the first to do it. I could be wrong uh, on this, but I think it, it is the first to do like a serious military show about giant robots where the other ones were sort of like superhero you know god robot kind of things Um mm. <clears throat> but Macross was a response to Gundam like he and his schoolmates were Gundam fans they had a Gundam fan club and out of that was born Macross and uh you know like this is it's stuff I love it's stuff I'm fascinated by it's things I want to talk about and things I want other people to know about um, and we don't Robotech's been around for 35 years and these are conversations that that aren't um, they haven't been prevalent and um, it's time I mean if Robotech's going to continue if macross isn't going to come over here on its own uh, if we're not going to get new maspita um, toys that are that are currently coming out in Japan you know like I'm gonna talk about this stuff. i'm not I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna put down this thing that I love that I'm working on, but I, I do have complicated feelings about the fact that these other aspects to it aren't aren't here and that and that we're not talking about the people that that created them and made them great and and uh, so I'm gonna use my complicated feelings and <laughs> the feelings that I know a lot of other people have to uh, further that conversation uh, as best I can.
0: I love it. Well, I'm just surprised that they also were giving you that amount of free rein because most of my friends, when they're doing, when they're, when they're doing work for um, you know, a, an existing property that's a licensed one especially, it's really hard to do things that might be off the model of what was established often in a TV show or often in you know, decades past and often for youth. Um, so that actually is pretty stunning.
1: It's been amazing so far, I have to say, and um, the guy I'm uh, working with over at the the licensor, the, the one I have to kind of bounce everything off of, has been incredible. I'm surprised at what um, what they're up for. I am pitch stuff to them all the time, and they... But I think part of why we're getting away with it is because this is an alternate timeline, so we can... I think they're feeling like if it's cool and fun and it doesn't impact the main timeline, then we can kind of get away with it. Um,
0: hmm.
1: Yeah. but I, And and they seem to be... Everyone seems to be open about me talking about the people who created the original shows, which I know wasn't something... I don't know if there was a company mandate to, to kind of keep that stuff, you know, um, a little quiet. But they certainly it didn't didn't ever seem like it was out in the open. Um, And I don't know if they're going to talk about it more, but I certainly am. And
0: uh,
1: I guess I'm a freelancer, right? So like, I'm not not a part of the company. What's the worst they can do? Fire me. Um, I'm just throwing (laughs) love around.
0: (laughs) Thanks for speaking up for creative workers, because like that is so important, like not forgetting the names of the people who made the art that we love.
1: Yeah, that's how I feel. And like that, I'm yeah. we're all working on this stuff. We're all working hard to to make cool new things and um, I uh, you know, it could be that one day somebody has licensed motor crush and is folds it into their own remix or mashup of something else and it's just part of a larger whole and and I hope that they remember my name with it and Cameron's name and mm-hmm. Babs's name when when they talk about whatever that new thing is. Motorcycle adventures.
0: <laughs> so I guess my one question for you and like yeah. if we have to if we have to cut this I'm fine with that but I want to ask so so you know one of the questions that I always have from you know the, the stories I hear from folks who've worked on licensed series is like well I mean are you able to have queer characters are you able to expand the racial diversity of the cast and things like that
1: uh, I think so I've everything that I've gone on I've pushed hard to make that happen, and uh, if you look at the lineup of the the initial lineup of the Robotech cast, you'll see that it. Uh, I mean, it's you can't tell anyone's sexuality from that, other than the old original characters. But if you see new characters that you don't recognize, there are people of color, uh, there are more women. Um, it's. It, I, I'm always pushing for more diversity, uh, especially for something like Robotech especially Macross. I mean, it, it, uh, it had a great leading character in Claudia LaSalle, Claudia Grant. She was one of the main characters. It was one of uh, the first, uh, interracial romances on animated Saturday morning television. Awesome.
0: Um, yeah, man. It was, I remember her visually.
1: That's right. Yeah. Cause she was, she was on the bridge with, um, Lisa, or Misa, as she is known in the Japanese version, um, on the bridge beside the lady with the Cinnabon hair. They were best friends. (laughs) And she gave Misa uh, slash Lisa the dating advice that she needed to sort out her love triangle problems. But... um, Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, like the Robotech guys have been great so far. I mean, I never had a problem at DC, we were always pushing over there. And then of course, on our creator own stuff, we can do whatever. Yeah. we like. yeah, that is so true.
0: But um, so like, but in terms of like queerness with me- with me- uh, with Robotech, like is it that you're able to have new characters who are who are LGBT or, or but you're not like really able to interfere with the existing cast members? Basically is what I'm garnering? Or... I haven't
1: pushed for the original cast members um, yet, and um, there are some original cast members that are kind of more supporting characters that I don't have sort of established. Um, preferences that I can push for and that's you know it's, it's we're still in the stage where there's a lot of lead up work I mean to the point of like last minute designing big things like robots and getting tons of approvals so um, I have been picking my battles about getting this thing going so far and, and I haven't had pushback on anything like that yet so I anticipate that everything's going to be great um, so far they've been fantastic
0: that's fabulous Yeah, I am very excited and edified
1: I think yeah, they I think much- they see the need to have a more diverse cast all around um, and to make the cast feel more like our world today uh, I think Robotech uh, as you know I love it I'm a big fan but it's uh, it's kind of a 35 year old show, and they really everything that they've done with it since then has been like comics and novels, and they tried to do a sequel series, and it didn't quite happen. The movie never got released. Then they did a direct to video two part thing, but only one part got released. And you know they're they're trying to get stuff out there, but it's tough. You know the entertainment world, it's really tough. So I think they feel like if I'm willing to go to bat for this thing. And really make strides pushing it forward I think these guys are all for it I think they're really excited about having somebody on board that's going to push to make any kind of strides with it both in, like narratively within the cast within diversity everything that's the feeling I get anyways mm-hmm. it's been nothing but but positivity from those guys so I'm, I'm shocked That I'm getting away with as much as I am, (laughs) but also super grateful for all the support that I've been given so far. Love it. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you again for joining us and um, for sharing your love of the fighting robot man with
1: me. I didn't. You know, I I didn't even talk about the robots at all. Really, (laughs) it's just about the people. I. That's how I. The robots are
0: about people. Robots are about people.
1: (laughs) The robots are about people. And thank you for having me on again, for letting me ramble for so long, as as I am wont to do.
0: You're always welcome back, and I'm excited for our panel at New York Comic Con, which was accepted, listeners. If you're coming to New York Comic Con, you will be able to hear me and Brendan talk about things that are different topics from the ones that we have just discussed at my panel, which is going to be Saturday night, October of the Saturday of New York Comic Con. Yeah, whatever,
1: October (laughs) 5th or 6th or whatever is around that neighborhood. It's the Saturday. Saturday night.
0: Yes. Yes. Get that on your calendar now. Be sure to join us. 9 p.m. We'll make it worth your while. It'll be badass. We're going to be very nerdy and probably a little bit goth. Maybe a little bit.
1: I will definitely be uh, running on adrenaline because I will have been at my artist alley table since about 9 in the morning. So I'm going to be like. Oh, good God. Yeah. I'm going to be like uh, a little punchy. Probably making really bad Um, jokes.
0: That's good. That's very on brand for New York Comic Con.
1: So you'll see us there.
0: And uh, where should our listeners keep up with your work online?
1: I guess I'm mostly on Twitter. I don't really post too much. I just sort of, uh, when there's a new issue coming out, I I go on and let everybody know. Or tweet about new uh, Kickstarters that I'm excited about that other people are doing. (laughs) Uh, Mm. uh, You can find me at, at... Brendan Fletcher, B R E N D E N F L E T C H E R. I'm also everywhere using my name, uh, Brendan Fletcher, on Instagram, brendanfletcher.com. I'm technically on Facebook, though I rarely log in.
0: Oh, that's fine. And you're, yeah, you're Brendan with E's and Fletcher with also E's. Just that's all right. the
1: vowels are E's. That's right.
0: Oh, and we didn't even talk about animation, like your own work. So we'll have to have you back because I want to hear more about that because you said you're doing work with Adult Swim and Adult Swim is my everything. So let's uh, make a plan for that in the future.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And to our listeners, Graphic Policy Radio is on, uh, on Spotify. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. And I, Ilana, I'm on Twitter, a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. Join us next week for our next episode. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.